If you could turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, and happy Father's Day. It's been a great morning of worship this morning. I'm glad uh, to be worshiping with every single person here. Um, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, we're going to finish, be finishing up 1 John. Uh, not this week, but next week we will uh, have our last sermon of 1 John, and then after that we are going to be going through the Psalms through the summer, and, um, and we'll should be a, a good time going through the Psalms. I'm excited for that. So, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, if you would read along with me. I write these sayings to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we may er, and we are in him who is true in his son jesus christ he is the true god and eternal life let's pray there and father god i just pray that you're uh, with us this morning lord be with our hearts be with our minds as we tackle this text lord that's a difficult text god I just pray that you guard my lips as I speak, Lord, that what is spoken is from you, Lord, and what is heard is from you, Lord. God, I pray that you're with us this morning, that we could have assurance for those that have their faith in your Son, Lord, that are here this morning, that we can have assurance of our salvation, Lord, that we can know with certainty that we are saved. God, I pray for anyone that's in here that doesn't know you, Lord that this is the day they put their faith in you, Lord, that they trust you and that they follow you, Lord. Be with us this morning, Lord. your son's name, amen. We live in one of the most confusing times in human history. The spirit of our age really is the spirit of confusion. We live in what is called a a postmodern culture, which claims, it's been taught in schools and from the elite of our culture for years now, that there is no objective truth. You can't know anything for sure. It's an age of skepticism where truth and reality are questioned. And we're seeing the effects of this philosophy in our culture. Things that used to be so fundamentally and foundationally clear are gone. We can't answer questions like, what is gender? What is a man? What is a woman? What is marriage? What is a family? What is good? What is evil? What is a human being? We live in an age of confusion, uncertainty, doubt, and skepticism. An age that claims you can't know anything for sure. The spirit of this age is confusion, but the Spirit of God is clarity. God is a God of clarity. God is a God of truth and reliability. God is a God of knowledge. Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And today's passage is really about knowledge. Foundational knowledge to our Christian walk that we can know with certainty that we have eternal life. Look at verse 13. It says this, I write these sayings to you who believe in the name of Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This verse is actually a transition from the main argument of this epistle. 
It's a transition into a a postscript or to an ending, a concluding paragraph. John is summing up the entire epistle in this passage that we're going over this morning. And it's kind of John's writing style. He does something very similar in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 30, says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The end of the gospel, John writes a postscript. He explains at the end of his gospel why he wrote the gospel in the first place. These are written. In other words, this is why I wrote the gospel of John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And I want to compare that to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, which it says, I write these things. Right? This is why I wrote 1 John, that you who believe in the name of Son of God. In other words, 1 John was written to you who believe. It was written to believers. Where the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, said, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The Gospel of John was really written to non-believers, that you may believe. It's one of the reasons the Gospel of John is a really good book. If you know someone that's not a Christian that's interested in reading Scripture, I would point them to the Gospel of John. Say, start there, because it was written so that people would believe in the Son of God. But first, John was written to us. It was written to believers. It was written to the church. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these sayings. John is saying, this is why I write. I write these sayings to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you, believers, may know that you have eternal life. In other words, 1 John was written to believers that they may know with certainty that they have eternal life, that, that believers may have assurance in their salvation. And the key word, actually, in verse 13 is the word know. Know. John is saying, you can know. Remember why John wrote 1 John. Remember, there's false teachers. This, this, this letter is written to a church where false teachers have come in and really split the church, and there's a bunch of people within this church following false teachers. Well, the false teachers were some kind of Gnostics we've been talking about. Gnostics get their name from the Greek word gnosko, which means knowledge. Knowledge. That's because they taught salvation came through a secret knowledge that they had and you could only get through them. If you gained this secret knowledge, you would be saved. John is saying there is no secret knowledge. We are the ones with the knowledge. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these sayings that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That word know, actually, in this passage is used seven times in these nine verses. John writes to the church so that they would have the knowledge that leads to confidence and assurance of their salvation. And there's three main things that John wants us to know in this passage this morning. He wants us to know that God hears our prayers. He wants us to know that Jesus protects us from the evil one. And he wants us to know that we have the truth about who Jesus is. So that's going to be our three points this morning. We know God hears our prayers. We know Jesus protects us from the evil one, and we know that we have the truth about who Jesus is. And it's through this knowledge we have assurance and confidence in our salvation. So let's go through these three points this morning. The first one, we know God hears our prayers. Look at verse 14 with me. And this is a confidence that we have towards him. This is the fourth time that that word confidence has been used in 1 John. We've seen that word in, in 1 John 2, 28, where it talks about the confidence we have in Jesus' future coming. It says this in 2, 28, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. It's used in 1 John four seventeen about the confidence we can have in the future judgment. 4, 17 says this, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. And again, these are for Christians. He's talking to believers, those that have put their faith in Christ, that we can have confidence when Jesus comes. We can have confidence in the day of judgment because our sins have been paid for on the cross. 
and we've been forgiven. The Greek word for confidence is actually uh, parousia, which literally means freedom to speak. We see this word used in Acts a lot. It's boldness in speech. It's used in Acts a lot because the apostles boldly proclaimed the gospel in Acts. Confidently proclaimed the gospel. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. In other words, we believers can speak freely to God. We can, we can speak boldly to God. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. The ESV kind of words this oddly, it's awkwardly for us, and it's almost hard to read. And that's because the ESV tries to be very word for word in the Greek, and the Greek just doesn't translate real well into English, so the word for word doesn't come across smoothly. So the NLT, the New Living Translation, actually kind of gets the, the meaning really well. And let's, let me just read the NLT's uh, verse 15. It says this, And since we know he hears us, when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. Verses 14 and 15 is saying believers should have confidence, confidence that God hears our prayers and confidence that he will give us what we ask for. But there's one extremely important line. If we ask according to his will. If we ask according to his will. In other words, if our prayers are in line with God's will, anything we ask, he gives And that's because God will accomplish his will. We can have assurance in that. You know, to be honest, this this week has been a challenging week for me in a number of ways, but this passage has really challenged my ideas of prayer. And a lot of the commentators said that I was reading were just saying some profound things that really made me step back and think, okay, well, how do I pray? And how should I pray? This is what John Stott says about prayer. Prayer is not a convenient device for opposing our will upon God, and I I, I think I pray that way a lot, where I'm almost giving advice to God and how things should turn out, right? Prayer is not a convenient device for opposing our will upon God or bending his will towards ours, but instead, prayer is the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. Every prayer should be a variation of the theme, thy will be done. Right? That's how Jesus taught it to prayer and pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You know what? Jesus even modeled this type of prayer, did he not? Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if there's any other way, but not my will, yours, your will be done. Jesus taught and modeled this prayer He modeled a prayer and taught a prayer that makes God's will the priority, not ours. Why? Simply, because God's will is best. God's will is best. Right? Jesus had complete trust in his Father. Jesus had complete trust in the character of God. Therefore, he had complete trust in the will of God. You know what? We should too. God's purpose is twofold. His will is twofold. And it's really one thing that, and, and the byproduct of the other, but here it is. It's, it's his glory, that's his will, that he would be glorified, and through that we would find joy. His glory and our joy. Therefore, you can trust his will. Actually, I want to I see this. If you would, turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 23. Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 23. And I know... If I asked, well, what's God's purpose? All of us would probably say his glory. I think we forget that it's also our joy. And that's so important. And it's through his glory we find joy. The more he glorifies himself, the more joy we get. We got to be preaching this to the community. We got to be preaching this to other people, teaching this to other people, living as if this is truly true in our hearts. This is what Scripture says. Look at verse 23. It says this, In in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask 
of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. It sounds familiar, right? Whatever you ask, he will give it to you. It sounds like the passage we're in, but again, there's another extremely important line. Whatever you ask in my name. It's similar to according to his will. This is what John MacArthur says about that line, in my name. He says this, to pray in Jesus' name is to pray consistent with who he is, with the goal of bringing him glory. It is to follow the pattern he modeled in prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he, he explains, or, and, and, his, uh, and his example of uh, humble submission to the Father's will when he prayed in Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, but yet not my will, but yours be done. The goal of prayer is not to gratify our selfish desires, but to align our will with God's will. But here's the good news. God's will, right, has two purposes. His glory and our joy. His glory and our joy. Look at verse 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Listen, God is for our joy. He is for our joy. He's committed to his glory and our joy. And this is important. He's so committed to his glory and our joy that he will answer our prayer, no, if it doesn't accomplish those two things to its fullest. And he asks us to trust him, to have faith when he says no. Because that's not his will. And his will, his plan is better than our will and our plan. His will and his plan will bring more glory to him and bring more joy than, to, to us than we could have ever imagined. I want to give you an example that I think this is so important. Like I said, I've been wrestling with this all week. So I've been studying this passage. If you would, turn with me to Genesis. We're going to be back in 1 John, but Genesis chapter 17, verse 18. Maybe put a bookmark in 1 John. We'll be right back to that. Genesis Chapter 17, verse 18. It's on the screen. It says this, verse 18. And Abraham said to God, just so you know, that's a prayer. He spoke to God. That's all prayer is. Speaking to God. He, and Abraham spoke to God. He prayed to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Well, we need some context to understand what's going on here. And what this prayer is all about. Remember, Abraham was promised. God came to Abraham and promised him a few things. One of the things he promised him was a great nation. Right? He would become a great nation. In other words, he would have a descendant. They would become a great nation. They would have a land to live in. And they would bless all the nations of the world. But for that to happen, he had to have a, a descendant. And God said that descendant would come from your wife, Sarah. But Sarah was barren. At this point, she was very, very old. She has never had a child, and she is way past the age of possibly having a child biologically. So Abraham had a good idea. He came to God with his good idea. He asked God if this promise of this descendant that would become a great nation would be passed to Ishmael. Right? This is his son from a different woman, different woman than Sarah. Make him a great nation, God. So Abraham prayed to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Make him be the one that the promise goes down to. Make him a great nation to your glory, God, and to my joy. I want you to hear, because this is important, I want you to hear how God answers Abraham's prayer. Verse 19. God said no. God said no. Have you ever heard that answer before? You pray for something that you're sure this will glorify you, God. Just if you would do this. Salvation of someone, a disease that you have, you'd get rid of it. This would glorify you, God. And this will also bring me joy. And you pray and you pray and you pray. And in God's infinite wisdom, and that's extremely important. 
that God's wisdom is so far beyond Abraham's. God's wisdom is so far beyond us. In his infinite wisdom, God says no. You know why he says no? He has a better plan. He has a better plan that will bring him more glory and bring you more joy. Look at verse 18. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Verse 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God's answer was no, but. But. God's plan was so far beyond Abraham's wildest dream that Abraham didn't even know to pray for it. (laughs) He thought Sarah was too old. That's impossible. Yet it's exactly what happened to the glory of God and to Abraham's great joy. When God says no to our prayers, we should have faith and trust in the character of God. That he's good, he's loving, and it's Father's Day. He's a father that loves us and wants what's best. And when he says no, it's because he has a better plan. Even it makes absolutely no sense to us, right? I mean, how many times have we prayed for something and we're like, God, this makes sense to me, and he says no. He's asking you to trust in his will and his plans because they're better. And they'll bring more glory and bring more joy far beyond our wildest dreams could ever imagine. Turn back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. First John chapter 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. In other words, we should have confidence if we ask anything of God according to his will, that he who hears us, and not just that, he will give it to us. Well, here's an important question. How do you know how to pray according to God's will? If we don't know it's his will. Wouldn't it be nice if God, like, wrote down his will in a book? And then gave it to us. Called the Bible. Actually, the Gospel of John says this, and I'm finding all these passages talking about prayer that kind of just go together. And it says this about prayer. In Gospel of John 15, 7, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What are Jesus' words? He spoke authoritatively. He spoke as as if he was God, because he was God. His words were scripture. Hebrews 1.1 tells tells us that. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus spoke authoritatively. He spoke scripture, and then he passed that authority down to the apostles who wrote scripture. And John 15, 7 says, if, if my words abide in you, if Scripture is in you, and you speak and pray Scripture, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. In other words, if our prayers are biblical, doctrinally sound, theologically rich, they'll always be answered because we are praying the will of God. And John actually gives us an example of this in verse 16. Look at verse 16. 1 John 5, verse 16 says this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, in other words, pray, and God will give him life. Right? God will answer that prayer. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. In this example, John's actually combining two themes that we've seen throughout 1 John. The first theme is confidence before God. Confident prayer. And the second theme is love for brothers, love for each other within the church. 
If you see a brother, right, and that's an important word in this passage, in this verse, if you see a brother, someone that is truly saved, committing a sin, it's literally in Greek, sinning a sin, you should pray for him. In other words, that should be our first response is to pray. Not gossip, not slander, not complain. I struggle with this. Our first response should be prayer. Pray that God will give that, that, that person life. Restore that brother. Right? Preserve that brother. Forgive that brother. And if that brother is truly saved, we should be confident that our prayer will be answered. Because God will not let his children fall away. God will forgive them. God will restore them. God will preserve them. God will protect them. John makes this, this clear in verse 18. We're going to get there. Therefore, we can pray confidently for each other. But that's only for a sin not leading to death. Look at verse 16 again. If anyone sees his brother, okay, again, a true believer committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, right? In other words, pray confidently, and God will give him life. He'll preserve him. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, this is a difficult passage. There's two questions we need to answer as we go through verse 16. First question is this, what is the sin that leads to death? And the second question is, why shouldn't we pray for that? So let's tackle that first question. What is the sin that leads to death? And my answer is, I'm not sure. (laughs) You know, it's funny, I've read probably eight different commentaries on this passage, and I got eight different explanations. Actually, I got nine different explanations out of eight different commentaries on what this could be. It's one of these passages that we have to hold loosely. No commentators seem to agree. It's not a passage that is super clear. But I want to apply a hermeneutical principle to help us out as a church in how we should approach passages, especially passages that aren't clear. And I want to be, be very clear myself that, that the Bible is extremely clear. It's rare to come across passages like this where it's like, I'm not exactly sure what John is talking about. But I want to use a hermeneutical principle. That's a fancy word, hermeneutics. I should explain myself. Hermeneutics is just the art and science of interpreting anything. You guys are using hermeneutics right now as you're trying to interpret what I'm saying. I may be... Well, never mind. Um, (laughs) Hermeneutics is the art and science of interpreting anything, but it's used in Scripture, in in seminaries and, and... Um, training pastors, the correct tools we should be using in interpreting Scripture. And honestly, every single time you open up Scripture, you're using tools, if you know it or not, to help you interpret Scripture. For example, use context to try to help you understand a, a phrase or a verse or a paragraph. That's a hermeneutical principle. Well, I want to use a hermeneutical principle here to help us just see what we should do when we come across passages that aren't super clear. Whenever you come across an unclear passage, always, always, always use Scripture to interpret Scripture. In other words, use clear passages to interpret unclear passages. Every single cult, every single cult does the opposite. They'll take the most unclear passages and make a whole biblical theology out of it, interpret the rest of Scripture through that unclear passage. We're called to use the clear passages to interpret the unclear passages, and I think it's best to always use near context to interpret a passage. What do I mean by that? Well, what is 1 John addressing? What is John addressing in 1 John, the the epistle of 1 John? He's, He's addressing people that have denied the faith, that have walked away from the faith, right? that are living in unloving, habitual, willful, unrepented sin. Therefore, I believe the sin that leads to death in the context of 1 John is deliberate refusal to believe Jesus Christ, to believe in Jesus Christ, and a complete disregard to God's commandments. Right? And to be honest, the Bible as a whole teaches this. Anyone, anyone refusing to believe and follow Jesus is heading to what? Death. 
I think the sin leading to death is a refusal to believe and follow Jesus. And again, I hold this very loosely, and it's not something that we can be dogmatic about, but let's try to answer the second question now. Why does John say one should not pray for that? Why shouldn't we pray? Right? Well, remember the, the near context here. Again, we're talking about confident prayer. Prayer that is in accordance with God's will. That we know will be answered because it's within God's will. And John gives us an example of this confident prayer that's within God's will. If a brother sins, you can ask confidently and God will give him life. Because as verse 18 is about to tell us, God will protect his children. But I believe John makes a very important clarification. If someone denies the true faith, right, a Christian that was a Christian denies the true faith and or is willfully living in habitual and unrepented sin, you can't pray confidently for that person. You don't know if that person's truly saved or not. There's no confidence that God will will protect him and bring forgiveness to that person. I don't believe John is saying don't pray for people that are sinning, that aren't Christians. It doesn't fit the rest of Scripture. Again, we use clear passages to interpret unclear passages. What he's saying is you can't pray confidently for those people, what God's will is for their lives. Let's walk through verse 16 and see if that makes sense. And again, I hold this loosely. It's not a verse to be dogmatic about. Look at verse 16 again. It says this, If anyone sees his brother, again, that's important, brother, a true believer, a Christian, someone that's truly saved. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, he shall pray confidently in the context here, and God will give him life, God will preserve him, protect him, forgive him. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. And I believe that's the denial of, denial of the faith. I do not say that one should pray for that. In other words, we can't pray confidently for that person. I hold this interpretation, like I said, loosely. But, you know, it's not the main point of this passage anyways. There's four main truths that we get from this passage, and let's just go through that so we're confident in what John is trying to tell us. These are the four main truths about prayer that we can learn in this passage. The first one's this. Prayer should be a tool that we use to submit our wills to God's will. We should be seeking and trusting in God's will, in other words, with prayer. Second truth that we learn in this passage is anything we ask according to the will of God will be answered. Therefore, if we ask according to the will of God, if we pray Scripture, we can pray confidently. And how do we know God's will? Well, the third truth that we learn is we should be praying biblical prayers. How do you do that? Well, be so immersed in Scripture that you just start speaking Scripture and praying Scripture. That's one way. Or just pray through Scripture. (laughs) Open up the Psalms and pray what you're reading, and apply it to your life. The fourth truth that we learn from this passage is we should be praying for each other. We should be praying for each other within this body, especially if we see someone in sin. Not gossiping, not slandering, not complaining, praying for that brother. So the first point of our sermon is we know that God hears our prayers. The second point is this. We know Jesus protects us. We know Jesus protects us. Look at verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin. And John wants to be clear. Sin is a big deal. It's the second time he's done this. Sin is a big deal. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. We Christians, it's clear in 1 John, will sin. And I believe verse 17 points back to to 1 John 1, 8 through 9, which says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, we sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, our confessed sins do not lead to death. 
if we repent from our sins, if we sin as Christians and we repent and we confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness, it does not lead to death, but instead leads to forgiveness and life. Well, what's the sin that leads to death? Again, I think verse 18 tells us, look, we know that, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Again, I believe the sin that leads to death is either denial of the faith and or habitual, willful sinning with no regards to God and his commands. Right? This is what the false teachers were doing. They did both. They denied the true biblical Jesus, and they willfully sinned. They said their physical body doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want with it. And they willfully sinned with their, their physical bodies. Broke God's commandment without any repenting in their hearts or sorrow. We know that everyone who has been born of God, who's, who's, a, who's truly saved, who is a, a new creature, who has been born again, does not keep on sinning. James Montgomery Boyce is famous for saying, the new birth will result in new behavior. The new birth will result in new behavior. And that's what John's been saying throughout this epistle, 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. doesn't mean he doesn't sin. Keeps on sinning. 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, in, in other words, if we say we're Christians... While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John makes the point, those that are saved, those that are born again, those that have true fellowship with God, those that are truly Christians, not just those that claim to be Christians, they will sin. They may sin, but they will not keep on sinning. They will not make a practice of sinning. They will not willfully, habitually sin without regards to God. Why? We'll look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but we who was born of, or he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. It says the reason why we do not keep on sinning is because he who was born of God protects him. He is who born of God, that's Jesus. Right? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was born of God. He will protect those that are truly saved. And the evil one does not touch him. Right? Jesus said something very similar in the Gospel of John 10, 29. He said this, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Jude 24 says this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Philippians 1, 6 says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians five twenty three says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of your Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It's not the quality of our strength or the quantity of our strength that gives us hope of persevering. It's the power of God. I want to be clear, too, because this is one of those times where you see man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, and which one is it? We're called to work as Christians. Our justification is, is, is by God and grace alone, but after we are saved in our sanctification, our walk with Christ, as we become more and more Christ-like, we are called to work. We are called to keep ourselves pure, 1 Timothy 5.22. We're called to keep God's commandments, 1 John 3.22. We're called to keep the faith, 2 Timothy 4, 7. We're called to keep ourselves unstained from the world, James 1, 27. We're called to keep ourselves away from idols, 
1 John 5, 21. We're called to keep God's word, 1 John 2, 5. We're called to keep ourselves in love with God, Jude 21. But ultimately, it's God who keeps us, Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Philippians 2, 12 says this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. There's this tension between our responsibility as Christians to to work and pursue God with God's sovereignty in these verses. In verse 18, I think we see this tension. Look at verse 18. It says this, 1 John 5, verse 18, We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. It's our responsibility to not practice sin. But he who was born of God, Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Therefore, ultimately, our perseverance in the faith is not something we accomplish. It's the power of God. It's Jesus who protects us. Our persevering is a sign of salvation because God is the one who keeps us and perseveres us and preserves us and restores us when we sin and forgives us. Listen, if I could lose my salvation, I would. Right? If I could lose my salvation, I would. If it was up to me, it's God who keeps me, and I'm preserved by the power of God. And I know what you're thinking. I have seen Christians walk away from the faith. I've seen Christians walking away from the faith. Well, John's already addressed this clearly. 1 John 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. It doesn't get any clearer than that. God would have kept them if they were truly saved. The continuing in the faith, the persevering, is a sign of salvation. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. Their leaving the faith and denying Jesus is a sign that they were never saved in the first place. Well, what about Christians, people that claim to be Christians? I'm, I am a Christian, and I, and I boldly proclaim it, yet... That person's living in willful, unrepented sin without any regards to God and his commands. Well, John has addressed this too, 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, right, Christians, we say we have fellowship with God, we are Christians, that's what that means. While we walk in darkness, walk in sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, you're a liar. You're not a Christian. The Bible is clear that those that are truly saved, God protects and perseveres. So we know God hears our prayers. We know Jesus protects us from the evil one. And we know the truth about who Jesus is. That's our third point this morning. We know the truth about who Jesus is. And John is wanting to end this epistle with confidence that we, as a church, would have confidence in in who Jesus is. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God. And how confident is that? John is trying to, to encourage the church. He's saying, we know we are from God because we've been born again and we show the signs of new life. That's what 1 John's all about. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Everyone else is under the power of the evil one. This includes the false teachers and those that walked away from the faith within this church that he's writing to. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. We have understanding. We are the ones with the knowledge. But I hope you see this. John is very careful in his wording here. 
Because remember what the Gnostics did. They said, we had the secret knowledge, therefore we're saved. We're the ones with the knowledge. We're the haves, you're the have-nots. And they treated everyone with contempt because they were uh, more sophisticated than they were. Because they had the knowledge. John takes the pride right out of this and says in verse 20, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. That's a language of grace. The understanding was a gift to us. It wasn't because we were smarter. It wasn't because we figured it out. It's a grace. It's a free gift given to us. Rebirth is a gift. John's made that clear. Faith is a gift. Justification is a gift. Sanctification is a gift. Persevering is a gift. Glorification will be a gift. And verse 20 tells us our understanding is a gift from God. We are not Christians because we figured something out that the rest of the world didn't. We are Christians purely by the grace of God. And all the glory goes to God, not my intellect. Because the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Verse 20. This is what Raven Neist says about this passage. We do not in our own wisdom discern the truth of God and thus pursue him. If that was true, we could be arrogant. We'd be the haves and everyone else is the have-nots. Rather, we too were under the power of the evil one, but by the work of Christ our eyes were open that we might know him. Thus John's hearers are reminded that the ultimate reason they understand that they have this knowledge, they they understand the truth about Jesus while others reject that understanding, is grace. It's grace. And we know, verse 20, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. And why has he given us this understanding? Why has he given us this knowledge? So that we may know him who is true so that we may have a relationship with God. Salvation doesn't come through some secret knowledge. Salvation comes through a relationship. We must know him, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John ends this epistle in a very similar way he started. 1 John chapter 1, verse 2 says this, Life was made manifest, that means seeable, and we, and this is the apostles, we went through this, we, the apostles, have seen it. We've seen Jesus. and We testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. That's the name John gives Jesus. In chapter 5, verse 20, he gives him that same name. And we are in him who is true, in in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John ends where he started. Jesus is the eternal life, but adds that Jesus is also God. He is the true God and eternal life. Just so you know, in Greek, because some people say the antecedent to he is God the Father, but in Greek, unless there's a clear reason why um, the antecedent would be something else, it's always the closest noun. So the he is the true God in eternal life. The closest noun to that he is Jesus Christ. It's also the name eternal life that John's already given him, so it's clear that Jesus is God. John wrote First John because he wants us to know we are saved, to have a firm foundation on our salvation. I hope as we've gone through First John, you are more confident in your salvation, not because of anything you have done, but what Christ has done for you, and that this is true. First John 5.13, I write these sayings to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Throughout 1 John, he's given us three signs or three tests to examine ourselves. Do we believe the biblical Jesus? What the Bible clearly says about Jesus, what he's done, what he did on the cross for us. Do we believe fully human, fully God? Son of God, the Son of Man. Are we following God? That's the second test. 
Are we following God ethically? Are we trying to keep his commandments? Not trying to earn our salvation, but because we love God and we trust God and we want to follow him, not being perfect. Do we truly have a a love for our brothers within the church? A love for other Christians? If you believe in the biblical Jesus, if you love God and therefore are trying to follow him the best you can, if you have a genuine love for other believers, these are signs of salvation. It's not what saves you. Christ is who saves you, but they're signs of salvation, and you can have assurance. You can be bold in your prayers to God. You can trust that Jesus will protect you, and you can know that we are the ones with the truth. Because God has given us the truth and has revealed it to us. I want to end this sermon by saying, if you don't know where you stand with the Lord this morning, or maybe you claim to be a Christian, but you're living in willful, habitual, unrepented sin, there's no confidence. You have no confidence where you stand with the Lord. Listen. Repent, which means turn from your sin, turn to God, run to him, and and ask for forgiveness. Repent and believe that Jesus Christ has, has come. He's lived a perfect life. He's died on the cross for your sins. He was raised on the third day, and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Repent and believe this morning, and you can have that same confidence, assurance, and know that you have eternal life that John is talking about in 1 John. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, Lord, I thank you that, that my salvation has nothing to do with my works. It has everything to do with, with what you have done through your Son, the life he lived, the death that through your Son's works I can have assurance, Lord in my salvation, because it doesn't depend on me, Lord. Yes, I should examine myself and see if, if I have the signs of salvation and look at, at my life and my heart, Lord, and see if I truly love you, if I truly trust you, Lord. But ultimately, our assurance and confidence is in you and your Son. I pray, Lord, that our church is bold, Lord, in that faith, because we know We have knowledge. We have a foundation to stand on. And and as we see the culture around us just crumbling, Lord, because there is no foundation, you can't build a a, a society and culture on postmodern ideas. That they look to the church. They look to Country Oaks and go, what foundation are they standing on? What confidence do they have? And it's attractive, Lord. I pray that's true for us, Lord, that we live a life that reflects what you have done for us, reflects the confidence we have in you, Lord, the assurance we have in you. Not in our strength, Lord, but yours. God, I pray that's true for us and that we give you all the glory, Lord, that we pursue your glory, Lord, and our joy to the fullest and that we trust you, Lord, when things don't go the way we think they should, that your will is better, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be humble. Help us to pray confidently. Help us to to know the truth about your son, Lord. Help us to trust in your son's protection. In your son's name, amen.